If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. What is Zechariah in Hebrew? Who remembers? The Lord remembers. Zechariah. What does the Lord remember? His oath to send the Messiah. And before the Messiah, the forerunner, which in the first coming was John the Baptist. In the second coming, we look forward to seeing Elijah. But we are today starting in verse 8, which begins in that day. What day? The day of the Lord. How far in the future do you think the day of the Lord is? Is it a thousand years? Is it a hundred years? Is it five years? It may not be that long. So it's a time that we can look forward to. It should excite us. It should get our motors running. Excite us to share the gospel message with a lost and dying world. To see how many of our loved ones we can take with us when that trumpet blows. It says, and in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Interesting, what's going to flow Living waters. Mayim Chaim. Living water. What do those living waters indicate? There's going to be actual water running, but what do they indicate? That's in John chapter 7, isn't it? John chapter 7. When these living waters are flowing from Jerusalem, who's sitting on the throne? Messiah will be. John chapter 7 verse 37 is about the Feast of Tabernacles which teaches the coming of the Messianic Kingdom when Messiah sits on that throne. And in verse 37 we're at Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day, the last of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacle where there's a ceremony called Simchat Beit HaShoeva which means rejoicing in the house of the water pouring. Where they go down to the pool of Siloam and they take water in a pitcher. They bring it up and pour it out by the altar and pray to God for the living waters. When they were praying for the living waters, what did they think they were praying for? The rain. But Messiah says, oh, but there's more. Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So as the day of the Lord opens, Messiah is sitting on the throne, and who populates the kingdom? Believers. The Holy Spirit will flow like rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will be everywhere, will be dominant around society. There is no war. Even the animals don't hurt people. There won't be that kind of violence that we see in the world today. But there also will be actual physical water that flows from under the throne in Jerusalem. Let me ask this. The Garden of Eden was identified by how many rivers? Four. The Tigris, Euphrates, and... The other two, we don't know where they are anymore. But when Messiah sits on the throne, we will see the two rivers that flow, that haven't been flowing since the time of the Garden of Eden. The world will be back much like the Garden of Eden. And it says, half of them toward the Eastern Sea. What's the Eastern Sea? 
We call it today the Dead Sea. Why is it called the Dead Sea? Because nothing grows in it. The salt content is too high. But there's so much of this living water that will flow that the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed and they will be fresh water. And there will be every kind of fish in there to support and feed the people. How many of you have been in the Dead Sea? Even I float in the Dead Sea. There's so much salt. But in the day of the Lord, I sink like a rock because it's going to be back to fresh water. Half of them toward the Western Sea. What's the Western Sea? The Mediterranean. Right now, if you go to Jerusalem in the wintertime, there can be snow many feet deep. But when Messiah comes, these waters are going to flow in the summer and in the winter. They shall not stop. When does water freeze? When, it, when it's below freezing, but more than that. When it's still. Water that's flowing quickly never freezes. And this just shows how much water is going to flow. And it's going to water the land. The trees are going to grow. The plants are going to grow. There's going to be plenty of food. There will be no more famine. This is a pretty cool verse, isn't it? Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 47, which also talks about these rivers that will flow. Ezekiel chapter 47. Messiah returns in chapter 43. The Torah is once more preached from Jerusalem. And we come to Ezekiel chapter 47, beginning in verse 1, we read about what's titled in my Bible, the healing waters. These are those living waters. They don't flow now, but you know they're about to. Hasn't been too many years since I was in Jerusalem and saw the Dome of the Rock had scaffolding all over it. And we asked what's going on. And the Muslims were complaining that the Jews keep praying to God and God's pumping water on her and is about to fall down. <laughs> to which I said, shouldn't that tell you something? They didn't like that. But however, verse 1, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. That temple is on earth. So all those preachers out there that say there will never be another temple, they're going to be surprised, aren't they? Brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. What's east from the temple? The Mount of Olives, and then the Dead Sea. For the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. When the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. How far is 1,000 cubits? Around a quarter of a mile, something like that. So the water's not all that deep. It's up to the ankles. Again, he measured 1,000, that's 1,000 cubits, and brought me through the waters. And the water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. Why can't it be crossed? It's moving too fast, too hard, too much water flowing. This is living water, Mayim Chaim, that represents the Holy Spirit. And to, the reason it's talking about toward the east and not toward the west 
is toward the east of Jerusalem. Today is desert. Desert was considered the habitation of demons. That's why there was no water. The water was absent. What do you think is going to be the case of the land when this water flows so deep and so swift and so hard? Is it going to be desert? Not going to be desert anymore. Is it going to be the habitat of demons? It's not going to be the habitat of demons anymore. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Are those mountains and plains from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea covered with trees today? No, because it's a desert. So what does this say about the very land itself? The land has been healed. It's going to be back to like the Garden of Eden was in days of old. They said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea... Its waters are healed. That is, the waters of the Dead Sea become sweet. It shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. i got to interject for a minute. One of the most heart-wrenching things to see in Israel is to go to Jericho. Jericho's water comes from the well that used to be bitter water and Elisha made sweet. That water is still the water source for Jericho in that whole region. God's power does not diminish over time. It just reinforces your faith. And notice in verse 9, it says, And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go. See, rivers is plural. Literally, it says the two rivers. So even though it's only talking about the one going east, it's acknowledging the fact that there's one going west as well. Verse 10, It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to En Eglaim. The word En there in Hebrew means a spring of water. And Gedi is the area where you go soak in the Dead Sea. So that whole area around the Dead Sea is salt and nothing lives. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea. What's the Great Sea? Mediterranean. Exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. So around the lake, there will be marshes and pools of water that will remain the same kind of salt water that it is today as a reminder of what was and the healing power of those living waters and the might of Almighty God. So the waters flow during the kingdom. What about in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth? which a lot of people don't realize is here on earth. The heavens and the earth have been cleansed of sin, but they remain. Let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. 
titled in my Bible, The River of Life. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. What does he mean by pure water? Anybody grew up in northern Ohio like I did who remembers the Cuyahoga River catching fire? You know you're in trouble when the rivers catch fire. Those are not clean waters. The waters that flow from the throne of God are clean waters. They're pure waters. A pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. <coughs> How many thrones? One. The throne. What's that trying to tell us about God and Messiah? One. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. When was the last time you heard about the tree of life? That was in the Garden of Eden. That's the tree that God would not allow Adam and Eve to eat from after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they live forever in their dead state, their fallen state. But the tree of life will be there for who to partake? Everybody. There will be no more death in the new heavens and the new earth. Your life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. I mean, trees do that today, right? You go out and you pick apples every month, right? No, uh, no. But in the kingdom and in the messianic era, in the new heavens and new earth, that will be the case. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. What curse has been lifted? One from Genesis chapter 3. Keep a finger here. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. The curse in Genesis chapter 3 came because Adam and Eve sinned. Once there is no more sin, sin has been eradicated forever. Then the curse is lifted. Look at verse 17. Maybe I should, yeah, start in 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. He didn't heed the voice of Satan. He heeded the voice of his wife. Did that make a difference? No, he listened to someone other than God. That was enough. And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So not only is death the curse that entered into the world, but also the toil that it takes to produce food. How many of you have been farmers at some point in your life? You go out and spread lots of fertilizer on a field and plant nothing, and what do you get a crop of? Weeds. How come you don't have to plant and till the weeds? Because it occurs. That's right. You have to work hard to get rid of the weeds to let the fruit grow. Did God give us a foreshadowing there of a parable Messiah would tell in the book of Matthew? Parable of the wheat and tares. Yeah. Who sowed the tares? The enemy. Satan did. 
God sowed the wheat, Satan sowed the tears. Okay, back to Revelation 22. So not only is there no more death, there's no more sin, and the ground is not cursed anymore. You don't have to get out there and cut out all the weeds in order to get the vegetables to grow. So that's Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb. Again, one throne, the throne, not thrones, plural, shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. What about his enemies? Yeah, they're dead. They're not there anymore. They're gone. Keep a finger here. Go to Isaiah 66, verse 14. If you notice, God keeps breaking things down into two categories. He does the same in Isaiah 66. And come judgment day, these are the two categories that will reign. <laughs> Isaiah 66, 14. <coughs> Oops, I got some questions out here. And go to meeting land where you're turning. Let me see what they are. Okay, looks like they've all been answered. Isaiah 66, 14, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. His hand is his protection, his blessing. And his indignation, that's the za'am, that's the wrath of God being poured out to his enemies. So there's only two categories. Which one do you see in Revelation 22? Just the one, his servants. Back to Revelation 22, verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That is, idolatry is gone. They will not serve any other God or anything called God. Only the Lord our God. Verse 4. They shall see his face. What? We're going to see the face of God? Yes. Sinful man can't stand in the presence of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, what did Isaiah say when he came face to face with God? Woe to me, I am undone, meaning I'm a dead man. Fortunately, that was just in a vision. He didn't actually see God's face. But in Revelation 22, we will see God's face. We will talk to God face to face. How many of you today, if you wanted to, could go have a face-to-face -face with President Biden? Yeah, oh no, it ain't going to happen. But imagine being able to come to the God of the universe and have a conversation. It'll probably start with, thank you, thank you, thank you. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. What does that mean? Their very thoughts will be of God. No more. Will every man's heart be full of wickedness? We will desire to be in God's presence and to praise him. Have you heard somebody say, oh, that would get boring just praising God all the time? If that's what boring is, let me have it. Verse 5, there shall be no night there. They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun. 
People say there won't be a sun. That's not what it says. It says there will be no need for because the light of Messiah will overshine even the light of the sun. It says, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. How long is forever and ever? Forever and ever. It is without end. How do you say forever and ever in Hebrew? Le'olam va'ed. Forever and ever. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14. We're up to verse 9. Remember, it's talking about in that day. What day? Day of the Lord, the Messianic kingdom. Who goes into the Messianic kingdom in their living fleshly bodies? Only believers. The unbelievers have perished when Messiah came and had the judgment of the sheep and goats. So verse 9, and the Lord, see how it's spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, the yod He vav He, which means I will be whom I will be. Shall be king over what? All the earth. Which part of the earth? All the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one. How do you say that in Hebrew? Adonai Echad. That's from the Shema. So who's going to be singing the Shema in the kingdom? Everybody. Everybody that's left alive will sing the Shema. The Lord is one and his name one. Trying to tell us that people will recognize that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Let's take a look at some of the scriptures that support this, starting with Psalm chapter 2. Do I think it's a recognition that Yeshua and God are not two separate, co equal, coexistent beings? Yes, absolutely. And that's the next step we're going to look at right here. In, I, in Zechariah 14 it said, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. Psalm 2 tells us who's going to be king over all the earth. Let's look at Psalm 2. We'll start in verse 1. Because not only was this partially fulfilled at Messiah's first coming, but it's finally ultimately fulfilled at the battle of Armageddon. As Messiah is returning the second time. It says, why do the nations rage? What does that word nations mean? The Gentiles, the Gentile nations of the world. <coughs> and the people plot a vain thing. What's a vain thing? Is it something that's going to happen? It ain't going to happen. It's not going to prevail. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, his anointed is Messiah, saying. Against the Lord and against his anointed, they recognize that it's one and the same. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Meaning what? We will not let Messiah come and rule and reign over us. We will stop him. Do you think God sits up in heaven going, oh, oh, I hope not. I hope I'm able to defeat them. Oh, no. It says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. 
He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. This is the za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M, the indignation of God being poured out. It says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, or Zion, prophetic Jerusalem. Which king is going to sit there? The Lord, our Messiah, Yeshua. So this, with Zechariah 14, tells us the Lord and Yeshua are one and the same. How many times in the New Testament do you see the Lord Yeshua? Yep. But verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So what Zechariah 14 verse 9 is telling us that this has been fulfilled when we come to the Messianic kingdom. You shall break them with the rod of iron. Thus you're going to rule them with the rod of iron. What's a rod of iron mean? It means you'll do my will or, yep, or else. You shall dash into pieces like a potter's vessel. That's why only believers go into the kingdom. The rest of them got judged. They got whacked with that metal stick. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What's another word for trust? Faith. So verses 10 to 12 are a call to repentance. God never pours out judgment without a call to repentance, as far as I can tell. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Yes, sir. Three, it says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And, and mine is capitalized. Their is capitalized. Yeah. You're correct. And back in Genesis chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our image. Right. That's the old royal we. Okay. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter two, verse ten. Who's speaking in First Samuel chapter two? Hannah. Hannah's praying, and she's praying in the spirit. And in verse 10 it says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. That's that iron rod we were reading about in Psalm 2. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Just another verse that talks about the reign of Messiah is going to be the entire world. Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Psalm 47, May as well start in verse 1, because I'm sure you guys will think the words of the song as we read it. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. 
For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. So who is the great king according to this? The Lord Most High is the great king. He's the great king over what? Over all the earth. In verse 7 of the same psalm, Psalm 47, verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Who's the king of all the earth? God is. So God's the king of all the earth. The Lord is the king of all the earth. Messiah Yeshua is the king of all the earth. What does that say about Yeshua the Lord and God? And that's what it said in Zechariah 14. And his name shall be one. So admittedly. The false Messiah would like you to believe that they're not the same. But the world will learn otherwise. Psalm 48. You don't have to turn very far. Verse 2. But we'll start in verse 1. To start the prophecy. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What's the city of our God? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In his holy mountain, which mountain is that? That's the Temple Mount. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Is that true today? No, but it will be in the kingdom. Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? Which great king is going to rule and reign across the entire earth from Jerusalem? Our Messiah Yeshua. Jeremiah 10.10 10. Jeremiah 10.10 10. Jeremiah 10.10 10. See, I have a question out there and go to meeting land. Let me check it. They say, I could not hear the question in Psalm 2-3. The question was, why does it say they and there? And in Genesis chapter 1, it says, let us create man in our image. That's why the kings of the earth use the royal we. So the king doesn't refer to himself as I. The king refers to himself as we. It's called the royal we. But do all of Satan's followers recognize that God and Messiah are one? No, they don't. But they will when it's fulfilled. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. That's not what it says in Hebrew, no. It says, but the Lord is the God of truth. The God, meaning there's only one, one and only. But he's the God of truth. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, that's the tribulation period, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. So again, the everlasting king is the God of truth and the living God, the one and only. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming,
Let me give you a chance to find it. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming. See the word days is plural. That's not a royal week. Means it starts from the time of Messiah's first coming all the way through to the kingdom. <coughs> Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. That's Yeshua. He was born 2,000 years ago and brought eternal and everlasting righteousness into this world. It says a king shall reign and prosper. Which king? That branch of David that is Messiah Yeshua. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. This is in a messianic kingdom. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Is that doublespeak? No, it's talking about the two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel has been gone since 722 BCE. But according to Ezekiel chapter 43, when the Lord reigns over all the earth, then Ezekiel chapter 37 says Judah and Israel will be put back into one nation under one king, which is Messiah. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel dwells safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord, our righteousness. Who does the hour refer to? All the earth, right? All the earth. Isn't that cool? Let's go to Zechariah 14, 17. But Wayne, that's only a few verses from where we are. Yeah, sometimes I don't get more than a few verses. So let's just read it. Verse 17, it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So who's the king? The Lord of hosts. Which families of the earth are going to come up to worship the Lord, the King of hosts? All of them. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the New Testament. Brother Wayne, what was that last verse? Zechariah 14, 17. Thank you. Yep. Matthew chapter 5, verse 35. I know you guys need time to write it down and then find it. I will slow down. I get excited. You know me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 35. We'll start in verse 34 so I don't start in the middle of a sentence. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. This tells us two things. One, the great king will reign from Jerusalem. And number two, which part of the earth is his footstool in the kingdom? All of it. Why footstool? How did you show ownership of land in Bible days? You walked it. You got the dirt on your feet. To transfer a piece of land, you walked it and then took the sandals you were wearing and you give them to the buyer as a transfer of the land. So which portion does Messiah claim and own? All of it. Matthew 6.10. Matthew 6.10 is part of what some people call, like me, the Lord's Prayer. Other people call it the model prayer. I don't care what you call it. Just read it. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come. What's that mean? 
It's a prayer that the Messianic kingdom will come to earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning over the entire earth will everyone bow their hearts and knees before the Lord and serve him and do the will of God. They will in the kingdom. Let's go next to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. What song do you start singing in your head as you're turning? Vaikras Shemo? Where am I going? Well, I'm going to go to Isaiah 9. Yeah, I wouldn't know any, any song that went with Psalm 9 either. I'm glad you're listening to me. Isaiah chapter 9. The Veahavta is a beautiful song, but I sure like Vaikras Shemo. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The word child in that first phrase is the word yelled, Y-E-L-E-D, yelled, And it means a baby born of a woman, a flesh and blood human baby. It's not a term used for an infant, only a baby. So this tells us that a baby will be born. And that baby, they capitalize. Unto us a son is given. That word son is not a baby. This son has grown. That's the second coming. So the baby, the first coming, the grown son, the second coming. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Here's where Jewish theology falls down. They wanted the kingdom to come with Messiah's first coming. And it didn't. But the scripture said it wasn't going to be the first coming. The government comes upon his shoulder at the second coming. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Meaning what? He will be over everything. He will rule and reign through his power. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Do you see a comma between Wonderful and Counselor? Take it out. It's Wonderful Counselor. That is... If you will listen to him, you will walk in righteousness before the Lord our God. What did Messiah tell us? Did he tell us to forget all God's commandments? Or did he say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? That's good counsel. The next one is El Gibor, mighty God. El means God. Gibor means a mighty warrior. So there's a song out there, A Mighty Warrior Is Our God. It's from the phrase, El Gibor. This is what tells us that Messiah is going to be the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaoth, the one who leads the armies of heaven for the battle of Armageddon. This says, Everlasting Father, which is not right. This is a word pair in Hebrew. Avi Ad means the father of eternity, the father of everything. Who created the heavens and the earth, according to John 1 1? Let's go look. Keep a finger here and go to John 1. I know people say the Father created everything, Messiah is the Redeemer, but what does the Bible say? Verses 1 through 3. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Go to Colossians chapter 1 to have a second witness. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. The hymn is Messiah. Colossians chapter 1. Page 1590, if you happen to have the same Bible I do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. The hymn is Messiah. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Back to Isaiah chapter 9. We're up to the end of verse 6, which says, Sar Shalom, which is translated in our Bible, Prince of Peace, which is okay, as long as you recognize Prince does not mean son of a king. The word Sar means chief, captain, the one responsible for, the one in charge of. It doesn't mean the son of a king. In the Bible, to say prince in that way, you always have to say Ben Melech, son of a king. So the prince of peace means Messiah is the one who will bring peace to the earth when he returns to establish the kingdom. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Prior to the destruction of the second temple, the sages of old interpreted verse 7 to say Messiah will be a virgin birth. It's from the word increase, which in Hebrew is lamarbe. Lamarbe. In Hebrew, there are 22 letters and they're all consonants. Five of the 22 look different when they're at the end of a word. They're called sophit or final forms. The name in Lamarbe, which is in the middle of the word, is a final form. And the final form of a name looks like a closed box. And the sages of old said that closed box represents the closed womb of a virgin. So this is the verse that they all went to and said Messiah will be a virgin birth. Of course, after Messiah's day, they said, oh, we got that one wrong. But no, they didn't. But in the increase of his government and peace, there will be what? No end. So it covers the entire world and from that point forward in all of history. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even for a little while? No, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So what does the fulfillment of this prophecy rely upon? Does it rely upon people being good? People being faithful? No, it relies upon the zeal of the Lord of hosts, which means it shall be done. There is no question. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Verse 15. 
If you think back to the Garden of Eden, and remember Romans 6.16, what happened when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and not God? It made Satan the god of this world. That's why Satan is called the god of this world throughout the scriptures until Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. This is the sounding of the seventh trumpet. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. This is the last of the seven trumpets. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. What does that statement mean? Satan, your reign is at an end. And notice a few verses later, Satan gets kicked out of heaven. And the great tribulation is on. And Satan tries to say, no, no, you cannot take it from me. But you know what? That was like me saying at the Pentagon, you cannot send me to Alabama. Yes, they could, and they did. And just like Satan saying, you can't do that, God's going to say, oh yes, I just did. Revelation 19, verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. What's Alleluia? It's Hallelujah transliterated from Hebrew through Greek to English. If Revelation was written in Greek, why didn't they just use a Greek word? Because there isn't one. So they could just transliterate the Hebrew. It's all they could do. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Over what? Over the whole earth. And a few verses later, Messiah comes on that white horse. And the armies of the false Messiah are slaughtered and Satan is bound. Let's read chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid a hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. I like to think that's got dual meaning. And set a seal on him so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. I want you to picture something we can't picture. Stamp your feet for a minute. See how solid that earth is? <coughs> Bottomless pit means literally that. He is suspended in air. Can you sit down? Nope. Can you lie down? Nope. You're literally just suspended in the air for a thousand years. You can't walk, you can't run, you can't do pull-ups, you can't do push-ups. You're simply sitting there, suspended in the air for a thousand years going, now what? Kind of look forward to that. Let's go back to 
Zechariah 14 to verse 9. And remember that it tells us no more idolatry. Zechariah 14, 9. The Lord is one and his name one, meaning there will be no idolatry. The Lord will not share his glory. He has always said that and he means it. Verse 10. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Geba is six miles north of Jerusalem. And Ramon is 35 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Today, that area is all mountains. It's all going to be a plain except for the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount will be raised, the rest of the land a plain. So where will everybody's focus be when they're walking toward Jerusalem? You gotta look up. You gotta focus up. It says Jerusalem shall be raised up. It literally means raised up, elevated above everything else. And inhabited in her place. Is that New York? No. Of course not. It's where Jerusalem's always been. Another interesting meme I saw on Facebook. Now that I've gone back on Facebook, there's interesting stuff out there occasionally. Was a meme that said essentially millions of people around the world are about to celebrate the birth of a Jew born in Jerusalem who don't believe Jews lived there before 1948. Kind of makes you think, huh? But from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate. In other words, in the same place it's always been. From the Tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. How did Israel come to possess that particular portion of land? Who did they steal it from? No one. They bought it. King David bought it. They didn't steal it from anybody. Verse 11. The people shall dwell in it. What people? What people? Believers. Believers are going to dwell in it. Can you imagine living in Jerusalem with Messiah on the throne? Wouldn't that be cool? And no longer shall there be utter destruction, meaning no more conquering. Now God had promised that so long as the children of Israel would keep the three pilgrim festivals, no one would covet their land. And they would be safe in their land. So what does this tell you about the kingdom? Are they going to keep the festivals? They're going to keep the festivals. But Jerusalem shall be a safely inhabited Let's look first back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Isaiah 2, verse 4. How do we know that Jerusalem's going to dwell in safety? Because who, who is king there? Our Messiah Yeshua. And God plus one's the majority, and he didn't need the one. We'll just start in verse 2. Why not? It shall come to pass in the latter days. The phrase latter days in Hebrew is the acharit hayamim, which means the end of days. It's an Hebraic way of saying the messianic kingdom. 
that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the temple mount that we're talking about in Zechariah 14, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. The mountains and hills refer to the other kingdoms of the earth that remain. Messiah's kingdom is over them all. They are subservient and subordinate to Messiah. And all nations shall flow to it. Which nations are going to flow up to Jerusalem? All of them. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's the house of the God of Jacob? The temple. Hmm. What does that say about all those theologians who teach there will never be another temple? It says they're wrong. Yep. He, who's the he? That's Messiah. Will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. The word there is Torah. If the Torah was abolished, somebody forgot to tell the Lord, which means it wasn't abolished. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There will be peace until the end of the thousand years when Satan's released for a little while. Then he's able to raise an army to try and throw Messiah off the throne. You know how well that's going to work? There's only a few words dedicated to it. That's right. It's not a long war. People say, Wayne, Isaiah 2 is just one place where it says it. Well, no, Micah 4 says the same thing. Let's just look at Micah 4, verse 3. Verses 1 through 3 say the same thing as Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Verse 3 says, He shall judge... You're not there yet. Let me give you a chance to get there. Guys, don't be afraid to tell me I'm going too fast. Verse 3. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. He, which is Messiah, shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What did we see in Isaiah 9, 6? Sar Shalom, the one who brings peace. Here's its fulfillment. Let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse 24. Told you the scripture said, so long as Israel goes up to celebrate the pilgrim festivals three times a year that no one would covet their land, this is where it says that. Starting in verse 23, it says, Three times in a year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. That tells us they're coming in the kingdom. They're going to come up and keep the pilgrim festivals. 
Is there anything in Ezekiel chapter 44 that would confirm that? Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 44. You looked at me like I did it again, but <laughs> but you didn't say anything, which means it was right. Okay. Ezekiel 44, verses 23 and 24. I know I go to these verses a lot, but these are during the kingdom with Messiah on the throne. So when people say we don't need to keep those Old Testament commandments anymore because Messiah has been crucified. Well, in the kingdom, he's still been crucified, right? And here's what is going to be taught. In Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, it said they'll teach the law, the Torah. But here it gives us more detail. What was the Exodus reference about the festivals? It was my, um, Exodus chapter 34, verse 24. Okay, so Ezekiel 44, verses 23 and 24. Here's what's being taught with Messiah on the throne. And they shall teach my people. Who are my people? The believers, Jew or Gentile alike, makes no difference. The difference between the holy and the unholy. And cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So all those theologians that say nothing is unclean anymore say that this is an empty prophecy. What do you know about God's prophecies? They all come to pass. In controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws, literally my Torah, and my statutes. Those are the commandments. We don't know why we should do them. Just that God said so. In all my appointed meetings, those are the appointed times of Leviticus chapter 23. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. I hear many church people say, well, Sunday is my Sabbath. Well, God says Shabbat is my Sabbath. And they're going to teach his Sabbaths regardless of what we think. Let's go back to Zechariah 14 to verse 14. That can't be right. It's got to be verse 12. Oh, yeah. This just doesn't need a lot of commentary other than watch the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. What battle is that he's talking about? Armageddon. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Yeah, that was a very graphic scene in the movie. But when Messiah returns in Revelation 19, that sharp sword in his mouth is the word of God. What's going to happen to the armies of the false Messiah when he recites these words? They're going to be fulfilled. They're going to melt. They're going to die. Verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day. What day? We're still talking about the day of the Lord. How many times does the day of the Lord appear in this one chapter? It's over and over again. Verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. 
Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. This is talking about the armies, like in the Battle of Gog and Magog, are going to turn on each other. They're going to get confused in the fog of war. And instead of fighting against Messiah, they're going to kill each other. And the blood's going to be how high, according to Revelation 14? The horse is bridled for the entire length of the nation of Israel. How many people have to die to get that much blood? Some of you out there in the medical profession, if we all have how many quarts of blood? Now, divide the horse's bridle times 200 miles, divide by that number, do you know how many people die? Answer is too many to count. Huh. Verse 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. Why will Judah also fight at Jerusalem? The Israeli defense forces are not going to stand back and let the Lord do everything. They're going to get in there and join in the battle. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations, take a look at that. The wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Why will the nations surrounding Israel give their wealth to Messiah when he takes the throne in the kingdom? All those nations will be subservient to him. They will honor him. They will worship him. They will give him the great gifts that are described here. Is this the only place the scripture describes this? Somebody out there saying no or he wouldn't ask that question. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Have you heard the song Kumi Ori? Oh, it's a beautiful song. We ought to play it one of these days. But it comes from Isaiah chapter 60. Kumi means arise and ori means shine. That's the first two words here. Arise, shine, for your light has come. That light is Messiah. This is talking about raising up when you see Messiah return. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. In Ezekiel 43, it says Messiah returns as what? The glory of the Lord. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. This is before Messiah comes. This is the state of the world right before Armageddon. Why is the world plunged into darkness? Because they're following the evil one. A deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light. That's the light of Messiah. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. These are the Jewish people being returned back to the land. And your daughters shall be nursed at your side. You shall see and become radiant. And your heart shall swell with joy. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. What does the sea represent? The Gentile nations. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. That was Zechariah 14, 14, was it not? The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Sheba, Saudi Arabia. 
They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaot shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 7 gives us more detail about the nations bringing their wealth into Jerusalem. So the Exodus reference was Exodus 34 verses 23 and 24. Okay, looks like all those other questions have been answered. Thank you, Rachel. Let's go next to Isaiah 66, since we're in Isaiah anyway. Isaiah 66 is all about the return of the Lord. And you might think we're coming to verse 17, which says, if you're eating a ham sandwich, he's going to kill you. But no, that's not where. Rather, to verses 12 and 13. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed, on her side shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So in verse 12 it says, The glory of the Gentiles will flow into Jerusalem like a flowing stream. Back to Zechariah 14. Verse 15. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and in all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. Meaning all the food that the armies of the false messiah relies upon are going to be destroyed as well. There will be no support for them. There will be no comfort. There will be no food. There will be nothing but death unless they what? Unless they repent. You mean at the battle of Armageddon they can still repent? Yes and no. Yes if they have not taken the mark of the beast. No if they have. If you take the mark of the beast, your fate is sealed. It's unchangeable. Wait. Yes? Well, the mark, is the mark a literal mark, like a physical mark? The answer is we do not know. There are two references in the scripture for one is the Passover is like a mark on the forehead and on the right hand. So there are two schools of thought. One is it will be a physical mark, and the other is that it indicates your actions and obedience. I think it'll be a physical mark. Because without the mark, you can't buy or sell. And if I just look at you, how do I know if you have the mark or not? To know if you can buy or sell. So I think it will be a physical mark. But it's not the number 666. That's the number of his name. Most people think the mark is 666. So they'll take the mark saying, well, it's not a 666. So it's got to be okay. Let's go to Revelation 13 and see what I'm talking about. There's a difference between and and or, right? Revelation 13, 
Revelation 13 verse 16 is about the false prophet who works wonders in the presence of the false Messiah. He can even call down fire from heaven. Verse 16 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 666 is the number of his name, and that's an or. It's one of three. His mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And right now, we don't know what the mark would look like, nor do we know what his name will be. We do know the number of his name, though, and it's not 666. Let's read verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him with understand and calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. His number is 666. But in the Greek it doesn't say 666. It says 660 and 6. Avav in Hebrew is the number 6. So people say it's vav, vav, vav. No. It's 660 and 6. So the last 6 is avav. But... How many different ways are there to get 600? There's not one letter that equals 600, so it's got to be a combination of letters. Hmm. So you can't just say, well, 666, is, his name is Vav, 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 so it's Vav, Vav, Vav. No, not right. Okay, back to Zechariah. We're up to verse 16. One of my favorite verses. And it shall come to pass. The Hebrew doesn't literally say it shall come to pass. They in English use shall come to pass because it's coming to pass. That everyone, what does that word mean everyone? Everybody. Who was left of all the nations, the word nations is Gentiles which came against Jerusalem. They came at Armageddon. But they didn't have the mark of the beast. You know how I know? Because those people are all dead. So these were with the armies of the false Messiah, but they didn't have the mark. Which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year, which means every year without fail, to worship the king. That's Messiah Yeshua. The Lord of hosts, that's who the king is, that's who Messiah is, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. When theologians teach that the commandments have all been abolished, the feasts and festivals are irrelevant to the non-Jewish nations, they're failing to take Zechariah 14.16 into account, which says everyone, Jew or Gentile alike, are coming to Jerusalem. They will worship Messiah and they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What does the Feast of Tabernacles represent? What does it teach about? It teaches about two things. First, back in the wilderness when God dwelt amongst the midst of the tribes and then in the kingdom how God will again dwell in the midst of the tribes. That was one. 
Yeah. Um, the Nummies were saying that they have a friend who's 98 years old who was there at Hiroshima. I have friends too that were at Hiroshima. And the nuclear blast literally melted the flesh off the bones like is described in Zechariah chapter 14. And they would tell you that this prophecy will come to pass. It is going to happen. Yeah, one of the ladies I worked with was there. She was up in the mountains when the bomb went off. And she said she left Japan immediately. Went over to Europe and married an American soldier. It was safer that way, she said. Okay. Verse 16. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, is used in the scripture 235 times. 235 times. And they're all in the Old Testament. Is there any doubt in your mind who the Lord of hosts here is in verse 16, who will be the king who will rule and reign in Jerusalem throughout the Messianic kingdom? There really is no doubt. And there's another 33 times that the phrase the Lord God of hosts appears. So between the two, it's 268 times. The first occurrence of the phrase Lord of hosts is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Again, you hear a lot of theologians say that you don't find Jesus in the Old Testament because he wasn't born yet. Well, he's all over it. 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 3. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. What was in Shiloh? The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. When he went up from year to year to worship and sacrifice, it was to the Lord of hosts. The one who dwelt between the angelic wings on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. The one who was in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud in the wilderness. The one who dwelt in the center of the tribes is the same Lord of hosts that they will go up through the entire millennial kingdom every year to worship and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Many times people say to me, Wayne, the Bible never says that Jesus is gone. And my only response is, we read it differently. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. And see that there is more to the festival than simply God dwelling amongst men. How would you say that in Hebrew? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God who is with us. Yep. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23 and start in verse 32. 
No, we'll start in 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, what does that word saying mean? The words came out of the mouth of God, right? Messiah said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. These words did. That word saying means just that. Speak to the children of Israel. There's two ways in biblical Hebrew to talk to people. One is Amar, he said. The other is Deber, he spoke. So this is from the word Deber. And the difference is, spoke is pounding the podium. It's strong emotion. It's not a soft conversation. Why don't you think about this? It's, get your act together, folks. That kind of words. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, meaning don't change a word of what I say. The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation that is a gathering together to rehearse. And it rehearses the Messianic kingdom. You shall do no customary work on it, which means it's a high Sabbath. It's a day not to think about your bank accounts, but to think about your future dwelling with the Lord. For seven days you shall make an offering made by fire to the Lord. I was about to say if we go look in, but we're going to, so hang on to that thought. On the eighth day, yeah, the eighth day of the seven-day festival, you shall have a holy convocation. That's a rehearsal. If the seven days pictures the 7,000 years of mankind, what is the eighth day? That's the new heavens and the new earth. The seventh day is the messianic kingdom. The eighth day is the new heavens, the new earth. So this tells us what about Sukkot? We'll be celebrating it for how long? Forever and ever. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a sacred assembly. That literally says it's a concluding assembly. And that's it. Which means when the Feast of Tabernacles is over and ultimately fulfilled... All of the feasts and festivals will have been fulfilled and will be in the kingdom. You shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord. It's not feasts. These are the appointed times. God's appointments with mankind. Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. They're holy, set apart to the Lord to rehearse that which is to come. I have another question out here. Yep. Verse 38, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord. So there's the weekly Sabbath plus the high Sabbath plus the Sabbath year. Besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's the same day that the Feast of Tabernacles starts. When you have gathered past tense in the fruit of the land. When we come to the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, we're in the kingdom and everyone who's going to be saved up to that point has been saved and the rest perished. So they have gathered in the fruit of the land, the wheat. The tares were destroyed and the wheat's brought in the kingdom. You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest and on the eighth day there shall be a Sabbath rest. 
You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. See that emphasis on rejoicing? Another term for the Feast of Tabernacles is the season of our joy. See the references to the trees. What do we read about those two rivers that flow from under the throne? That the trees grow all along the side. You shall keep as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute. What's the next word? Forever in your generations. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All you who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. So not everyone has to live in the booth for seven days, but a native Israelite is required to by God. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And when they dwelled in booths, where did God dwell? The tabernacle, which is a booth, a temporary dwelling. He dwelt with them in the center of them in the same kind of temporary building that they lived in. Let's go to Numbers 29. Numbers 29. And I just want to put you want you to put in your notes to start in verse 12. And read through um, the end of verse 34. And what you would find, we do this every year at Tabernacle, so I don't want to do it again here. Is there is a particular number of bulls that Israel had to sacrifice every Feast of Tabernacles. And how many was it? Seventy. According to Genesis 10, God divides the world into seventy nations. So Israel had to sacrifice a bull for every one of the 17 nations. Which is a reason that the Feast of Tabernacles has another name. It's called the Feast of All Nations. Brad and Penny ask, Wayne, concerning the Battle of Armageddon, will the attacking armies, the ones that we're currently hearing about, that is Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS, Pilo, etc., or will it be nations such as Russia, Turkey, Russia, Turkey China, Iran, etc.? The answer is, it is the entire world, all nations. So it's the United Nations gathered together as a whole that will come against Jerusalem. Does that include the United States? Regrettably, it will. Yeah, that's one reason I left the military when I did. I said, I'm not going to be a part of that no matter what happens. Okay, Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. Starting in verse 13. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Deuteronomy 16. Verse 13. If I said it wrong, just back up to tape and fix it. And I want you to keep two other things in mind as we start reading. One is the parable of the wheat and tares. Which gets gathered up first? The tares get gathered up and cast into the fire. 
then the wheat gets gathered into the barn. And in Revelation chapter 13, the end times battle is described in two ways. One is as gathering in the grapes and the other gathering in the wheat. So verse 13 says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered, past tense, from your threshing floor, that's the wheat, and from your wine press, the vine. So the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles happens when Armageddon is over. The tares have been gathered up and cast into the fire and the wheat is now being gathered into the barn as well as the grapes being harvested. Verse 14, And you shall rejoice in your feast. Again, the emphasis on rejoicing. I tell you what, when you get to live in Messiah's presence, you're going to rejoice whether you think you will or not. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger, that's the non-Jew, it's Jew and Gentile alike, and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Where did he choose? Jerusalem. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that includes Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. And at the Feast of Weeks, that's Shavuot. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Gavin says, does that mean the Feast of Tabernacles can only be in Jerusalem? No, those in the land were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Those of us that are outside the land of Jerusalem, or the land of Israel, we celebrate it here. We don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. Many people did, but they were not required to. Okay, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. There was something else that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles that will continue throughout the kingdom. And that begins in verse 10. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, that seventh year is called what? The Sabbath year, the Shemitah. At the appointed time, that is at the festival, in the year of release at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law, that is the book of Deuteronomy, before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that's the non-Jew, that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. That their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So throughout the millennial kingdom, yes, everybody has to go to Jerusalem no matter where they live. Which means we probably won't be scattered all the way over to the United States anymore, right? 
but they all must go up, and every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire book of Deuteronomy will be read because it contains all the commandments, statutes, and judgments that apply to all people for all time, summarized in the one book. Second Chronicles, chapter 8. Second Chronicles, chapter 8. Second Chronicles, chapter 8, verse 13. We'll start in 12, so I don't start in the middle of a sentence. Then Solomon, who was Solomon, do you remember? David's son, who actually got the privilege of building the temple, offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, Offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. See, we talk about the seven appointed times of the Lord. Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. But in God's eyes, they are three feasts. And some of the feasts include more than one appointed time because Messiah was going to do more than one thing in that feast time. But when every one of the festivals was fulfilled by Messiah, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. So when Messiah was crucified, where was all Israel? When he was buried, where was all Israel? When he was resurrected, where was all Israel? They were there to see it. So they couldn't say, well, I was off in some far off place and I didn't hear. If that was the case, it's because they weren't being obedient, were they? Ezra chapter 3. Ezra takes place at the end of the Babylonian captivity. When people are returning to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah, they rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but in Ezra, they rebuild the temple. You want to go to Ezra chapter 3, verse 4. One of the first things they did when they got back to the land was to begin to celebrate those appointed times of the Lord, those three pilgrim festivals. Ezra 3, 4 says, They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day, which are 70 bulls, one for each nation of the world. If it surprises you, I saw some shock on some faces that Israel had to sacrifice a bull for each of the nations. Turn to Psalm 117. Psalm 117 was sung in the temple at all of the feasts and the festivals by the Levitical choirs. Psalm 117. It's only two verses and we sing it in here in our songbook rotation. It says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. 
for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So Levitical choirs would keep the Gentile nations before the Lord as they celebrated the feasts and the festivals. Now to Nehemiah. We said Ezra was where they rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah where they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13. When Israel returned to the land, they really had a desire to walk uprightly before God. But how long did that desire remain? As we finish Zechariah, we will turn the page and go to Malachi, and you're going to find not very long. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, says, Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all people, with the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. So when is this being read to them? At the Feast of Tabernacles. If we back up to verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and read it to them. He actually started reading on the first day of the seventh month, but it took him a long time. For two reasons. One, the people hadn't heard it for 70 years. And two, a lot of them were not that fluent in Hebrew anymore. A lot of them had been born in the captivity and raised with Aramaic. So there were people here in verse 7 that helped the people understand where they had lost the Hebrew and would translate form from the Hebrew to Aramaic to make sure everybody understood. Have you heard of the Targums? The Targums are on every one of the prophetic books except Daniel. And the Targum is an Aramaic paraphrase. It was to continue the tradition to make sure that every person would understand the prophecies, whether they could understand the native Hebrew or whether they were still Aramaic speaking. Parts of Daniel are written in Aramaic. Which parts? The prophecies are within. No, part of chapter 2 through chapter 7. The portion that's directed at the Gentile nations. It starts in Hebrew and it ends in Hebrew. So there's prophecy in both places. Yeah. But Daniel wanted to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar clearly understood what God was saying. And when Nebuchadnezzar thumbed his nose at God, he got to eat grass like an ox for seven years. But he couldn't say, God, how did I know? Because Daniel had explained it to him in his own language. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And just very briefly, since we've gone over it already, 
John 7.37 says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh day is called Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation. Now, somebody not too long ago rebuked me for that and said, It doesn't mean that, because there's two ways to say great in Hebrew. One means great as in large, and the other's great as in number. And this, when you say the great salvation, Hoshana Rabbah, Rabbah means very numerous. It means many people are going to come to salvation through Messiah. So they just didn't understand there's two different ways to say great. But in, it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, if, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, for those believing him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Look at verse 37 for a moment. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, comma, saying. That tells you what language this was. This was not originally Greek. That saying means what follows is a quote. That's the Hebraic way of saying what follows is a quote. So this was originally Hebrew. Whether people like it or don't like it, that's just the way it is. Zechariah 14, verse 17. Boy, you know, I was sure we would get halfway through Malachi today, but I don't think we're going to. Verse 17, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth, and by families of the earth, they're talking about nations. God divided the 70 nations by the 70 families of Genesis chapter 10. I know we have a whole lot more nations today than that, but we all descend from one of those 70 ancestors or multiple ones mixed together. Whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship. What if they say, I'm not going up. I don't want to worship the Lord. I'm not going to go keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They refuse to come up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. On them there will be what? No rain. If there's no rain, you call that place a desert. And you call it a place where food doesn't grow. Which means they're coming. If they want to eat, they're coming. Verse 18 is an if. It doesn't say they're, they're going to refuse. It says if the family of Egypt, this is just an example, will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and that plague is famine. Have any of you ever been really hungry? I mean really, really hungry. If you realize that the end of the famine is we go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, how long do you have to be hungry before you decide you're going? I would say not very long. Verse 19. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. That's an odd thing to think about. But where was 
holiness to the Lord, which is Kadosh Ladonai engraved on the headband of the high priest. So what is this saying? That all the world is going to have a changed focus. And their focus is going to be on holiness to the Lord. If they're even going to label their pets and work animals with holiness to the Lord, it shows a wholly changed attitude. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. That is, everything in them will be holy unto the Lord. No unclean foods, no. There'll still be horses, but ain't nobody eating one. Let's go to Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Exodus 28, verse 36. Exodus 28, verse 36. Twenty-eight's got an eight in it, doesn't it? Yep. There we go. Describing the priestly garments. It says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet. Kadosh Ladonai, holiness to the Lord. And then to Exodus 39... Oops, I shouldn't turn the pages. Exodus 39, verse 30. Exodus 28 was the command to do it. Here in Exodus 39, they actually do it. Verse 30. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Kadosh Ladonai, holiness to the Lord. So when they put holiness to the Lord on the horses, they're indicating that all that they do with the horse, all the work that they do, will be designed to be holy to the Lord. They're not going to walk in sin anymore. They're not going to walk in rebellion and disobedience. Each man's not going to do what's right in his own eyes. He's going to think about and put into practice that which God commands and directs. Verse 21, yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts, which as Daniel said, no more piggies, no more shrimps, lobsters, etc. All that the people eat will be dedicated and holy to the Lord. Go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 13. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13. Then Yeshua went into the temple of God. What festival is about to be celebrated? Passover. And drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's where, that's in Isaiah 56. But you have made it a den of thieves. And you say, how does that relate to Zechariah 14? Well, go back and let me finish the verse. 
Zechariah 14, verse 21. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. That word Canaanite is incorrect. It should be, there will be no merchants in the house of the Lord. That's why I want us to see in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13, Messiah chased the merchants out of the temple. The temple is to be a place of holiness. But what were the money changers and the merchants in the temple doing? They were cheating people. They were cheating people in God's house. That's why he said you made it the den of thieves. When you went to the temple, you could not use foreign currency to buy a sacrifice or to put any offerings because they had pagan symbols on them. So you had to change the money to Israeli money, which didn't have the pagan idols. And they say the money changers would give you 10 cents on the dollar. They were robbing people blind in God's house. God says, that ain't happening in the future. In the Messianic kingdom, Messiah drove out the merchants. They're going to stay out. The reason it's translated here, Canaanite, is the word for merchant is the same as Canaanite. It's Canaan. So you can understand how somebody who hadn't read Matthew might confuse and think Canaanites. But there aren't any Canaanites left anymore as far as anybody knows. Ooh, we have 10 seconds left. We finished Zechariah. What do we say? We finish a book. Chazak, chazak, vanish, chazak. Which means be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. For how are we strengthened as believers? But by studying the word of God. So next week, Lord willing, we'll begin with Malachi chapter 1 as we study the Italian prophets.